Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to this Trove Asia online panel discussion that's presented in partnership with the Australian Institute of International Affairs uh, and China Matters on the topic of a recently published policy research report, China's Antarctic Ambitions and Their Implications for Australia. My name is Nick Bisley, and I'm the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the Trove University. Uh, I'm also a member of China Matters Advisory Board, and I have the pleasure of moderating our panel discussion today. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we all meet today. Um, I'm here on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations peoples who are joining us today. Uh, today, we're talking about Antarctica, a continent in which the question of sovereignty is uh, a crucial one, as we'll discuss. And I think it's important to reflect as we're paying our respects to traditional owners that sovereignty was never ceded in the lands on which we meet. Um, also, many of us will be joining from across Australia and indeed many parts of the world. And I would encourage those who'd like to, to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands uh, on which they're based to use uh, the chat function uh, to do so. So I'm delighted that so many people um, are here to hear this, to taking part in this discussion. We had over 240 registrations, obviously with COVID and various other things, we probably won't get the full 240, but it's a testimony to the interest of the topic. Um, uh, that so many people have signed on. Now today I'm joined by three people who bring diverse expertise and experience to the discussion on this topic. Um, first I'd like to welcome Ms. Yun Zhang, the inaugural AIIA China Matters Fellow and the author of the report uh, that is jointly published by China Matters and the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Yun has actually visited Antarctica some years ago as a tourist and some of her brilliant photography is uh, embedded in the report. Uh, to give us a view from Beijing, and I would emphasize a view from Beijing um, on the topics that you raises, is Dr. Nungye Liu, Liu, pardon me, for Associate Professor uh, at the Yong Fung Ho School of Law at Singapore Management University. Nungye has published extensively on polar issues and brings his expertise to bear. Uh, and our third panelist today is Mitch, Mr. Richard Maud. Richard is Executive Director, Policy, and a Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, he's previously had a long and distinguished career in government. Uh, and when he accepted this invitation, Richard did emphasize he is not an Antarctic specialist, um, but will comment on Yun's report as a foreign policy expert and will provide a view, again, an emphasis on a view uh, from Canberra on the issue that Yun raises uh, in her report. Now in Australia, we tend to hear about Antarctic matters only sporadically uh, when it comes to the actions and intentions uh, in Antarctica of the People's Republic of China, there is, like most things China-related, a, a, a range of, pardon the pun, polarizing opinions. Uh, so this report provides a really good overview of the key contentious issues and some perspective brings an interesting perspective to bear uh, on these topics. Um, in terms of the running order, we'll start first with Yun to provide us with the overview of the main arguments in her report about China's Antarctic ambitions and what they mean for Australia. Uh, then I'll ask Nguyen and Richard each to comment um, before we begin a bit of a conversation with all three panel members. Uh, each speaker has around seven minutes to present and I will try to keep uh, a, a somewhat iron fist on the time given that we only have an hour uh, in total. Uh, and in the final 15 minutes or so, we'll be open for the audience uh, to pose questions to the panel. If you have any questions, please submit these through the Q&A, not the chat function. Um, I'll be monitoring the Q&A function, sorry, the Q&A section uh, to curate the questions to pitch to uh, the panelists. And ideally, it'd be 
be great if you could point uh, point out which panelists you'd like to direct your question to or to all three. Um, we will finish promptly at 3 p.m. So that may mean we're not able to address all of the questions. Um, but without any further ado, Jung, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. Um, first, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that I am speaking to you from today, the Ngunnawal and Nambri people. And thank you to Nick and Nguyen and Richard for uh, joining me for launching with launching the report. Now I'll share uh, my screen. Um, let's see where is it. Here it is. So, uh, why Antarctica? Um, well, as Nick mentioned, I traveled to Antarctica about five years ago as a tourist. And as a part of that trip, I actually had the opportunity to visit uh, one of the uh, Chinese research stations on Antarctica. It's quite an interesting trip. Um, but Antarctica actually touched on so many different issues. It's not just geopolitics or military. Uh, there's international governance issues, there's resources, fisheries, environment, climate change. Um, so there's a variety of issues involved when it comes to Antarctica. And of course, Australia has a very close connection to Antarctica. Um, we're the, one of the earlier countries to explore Antarctica. And we're quite influential um, Antarctica affairs. Of course, we're also a climate country as well. But it is an overlooked region generally. The media attention has been sporadic, uh, but usually when it does happen in the context of China and Antarctica, it is about China's increasing power. Um, and where there is media attention, of course, there's a tendency towards some of the alarmist reporting on China. Here are some examples. Um, there is a aircraft carrier. Uh, apparently going towards Antarctica, which is, uh, you think, why? All right. Because I know that a lot of uh, people here today probably uh, are not Antarctic specialists. So I think I'll start off with some thing setting. Antarctica was first explored at the end of 19th century, often called the heroic, heroic age. Many of the explorers are very well known today. You know, we've got Shackleton and there's the fault of Mawson there. Um, the streets in the Canberra suburb of Mawson are uh, all named after Antarctic explorers. It was seen as testing of limited human survival, like later on climbing Mount Everest and the race to space. Now, Australia claims more than 40% of Antarctica, um, which you can see there. Uh, uh, on the left. And Antarctica itself is actually bigger than the Australian mainland as well. Um, so the claim, Australia's claim is actually 80% of the size of Australian mainland. So it's a very, very, very big size. The claim was passed on to Australia from the UK in 1933. So originally it was a UK claim. And then there was a federation and that was passed on to Australia. But only four countries in the world recognize Australia's claims, um, United Kingdom, New Zealand, France, and Norway. Basically, it's a mutual recognition. The Antarctic Treaty came into force in 1961. And as part of that, all parties to the treaty agree that no new claims can be made. Under the treaty, climate countries and non-climate countries enjoy similar rights and privileges. 
For example, non-claimed countries can build research stations on territories claimed by, a by another country, and that has happened a lot. China is a relative newcomer to Antarctica compared to Australia. Its scientists only traveled to Antarctica from 1980s and acceded to the treaty and became a consultative party, which gave a say um, to about governance of Antarctica only in 1985. And here you see some photos I took of the Great War Station, which is the first station um, built by China on Antarctica. Um, and there is a uh, uh, some of uh, a note written by Deng Xiaoping there as well. Um, it's also important to note that only 29 countries out of approximately 200 countries in the world are consultative parties. So only 29 countries have the power to basically make decisions on Antarctic governance. And this is in the uh, map that's... Uh, so. That's basically all the green and red, are, they don't have any um, decision-making power when it comes to Antarctica. So that's most of the world. Uh, that is all the pictures I have to share. And now you just get to see me talking instead. Let me just make sure this is okay. So my report examines China's ambitions and activities in Antarctica. I found that much of the concerns and worries in public reporting about the PRC Antarctica is overstated, especially with some of the sensationalist reporting on territorial claims and militarization. I think this is because many reporters and commentators tend to transplant China's behaviors and activities from one region, such as South China Sea, to Antarctica, despite the different context. On Antarctica, I argue that China is only a middle power, not a great power. And so the tactics it uses is different. And of course, its aims in Antarctica is also different to its aims elsewhere, such as in the South China Sea. The main interests it has in Antarctica include development, security, and international governance. Under development, gaining access to resources and strengthening its science and research capability help its economic development. For military, Antarctica hosts receiving stations for China's Beidou satellite navigation system, just like Antarctica also hosts receiving stations for US-owned um, GPS and the Russian GONAS as well. And of course, climate change is a national security issue for almost all countries. And Antarctica is crucial in that. Just shrinking ice sheets lead to rising sea levels, which threatens coastal cities everywhere. On top of that, um, China is a consultative party in the Antarctic Treaty, which means it participates in decision-making on Antarctica. And its behavior there um, will be seen by other countries as well. As a middle power, China is more favorably disposed to rules and institutions. As a middle power, uh, Antarctica, that is. Um, it is more favorably disposed to rules and institutions, uh, such as Antarctic Treaty. Um, and that's especially since it does have some decision-making power since it signed the treaty. So it is part of this exclusive club of 29 countries that have decision-making power. So of course, it wants to um, continue that 
and all signs pointing to want to continue. Um, after all, it is unlikely to benefit if the system falls over, since it is not the dominant power on the continent. But China wants more say on Antarctica and wants its interests more reflected in negotiations. From its perspective, it is quite frustrated that it is not more influential in Antarctic forums as it is elsewhere. And this has caused tensions. Where this tension is manifested and disagreement is most intense and potentially difficult to resolve is the different countries' respective approaches to Antarctica. Now, China has a very strong development focus where potential access to resources such as fisheries is quite important to it. For Australia, preserving the environment in its pristine state is more important for us. And decision-making on a lot of issues on Antarctica is by consensus. And China has been willing to block progress when, even when it is a sole opponent. The development perspective it holds, unfortunately, is not as prominent as in the Antarctic Treaty um, members as it is perhaps in the broader international community, because consultative party members tend to be richer countries. So it is harder for China to really garner um, support for a lot of um, what it wants to do. But despite these difficulties and disagreements between Australia and China, I argue that there is still scope for cooperation that will be beneficial for both countries. At least the two in my report, one is on logistics, specifically resuming port visits to Hobart, and the other one is scientific cooperation. So I will leave it here um, as uh, an overview of my argument in the report. Thank you. Thanks, Yun. Uh, um, the floor is yours to give your uh, response to Yun's comments and report. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nick. And hello, everyone from uh, Tropical Singapore. I think this uh, event proves my long-lasting interest in Antarctica after so after uh, all these years talking about Antarctica, uh, especially when I uh, travel to Tasmania again and again and again. So um, uh, from based in Singapore is a I mean, I just came here recently. I had quite a kind of interesting experience already because people probably know that Nancy Pelosi just left Singapore uh, for Taiwan uh, today. So, I mean, uh, I think <laughs> just to follow up what, what we uh, mentioned, uh, when we are trying to understand uh, the Chinese uh, policy in Antarctica, I think there are two two kind of uh, overarching guiding uh, principles uh, just to bear in mind. The first one is everything is domestic. I mean, China is huge. China is, to, least, to a certain extent, China is very much like the United States. China is a huge country where everything for the Chinese policymaker is, is domestic. And second is the Chinese system is a very much a top-down system. I mean, top-down, I mean, really the top-down from the presidency and then to the uh, ministry, uh, different ministries, and then to the state, uh, to the to the, to the the uh, provincial level, and then uh, so on, so on. So after talking about China and Antarctica 
for all these years. I've been in this uh, webinar, I've been trying to thinking about where does this all begin? I mean, the thing is, <clears throat> China has been in Antarctica for more than uh, 40 years now. And, uh, but this apparently becomes a, a very uh, significant uh, media <laughs> topic uh, in Australia over the past year, over the past years, and I I I, I tried trying to uh, look back, and I realized probably 2013 is is a, a turning point because 2013, so presidency presidency took office in 2012, and in 2013 uh, he uh, kind of uh, publicly. Uh, raised his signature foreign policy Bell and Road Initiative. So that is something that is something very broad, but also that is that is also a kind of a signature policy in a way that this is a new new administration and then he wants really to push his own agenda. So everything seems to start from there. So I, I, for to me it seems that every ministry has its own KPI to implement this kind of a broad strategy. So then when it comes to uh Antarctica, which is managed by state ocean administration, then you will see that uh, in that 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 was the year when Chinese delegation suddenly uh, started posting proposing uh, to establish a uh, ASMA, the Antarctica special uh, specially managed area around the Quinlan Station, that is the uh, the Dume, the, the highest point of the Antarctica uh, ice sheet, and also that is also the year when Chinese delegation became very vocal. And, and openly opposing uh, the uh, marine protected area proposals in Kamala. So everything seems to start from there. I think it's, it's that kind of, that is from that turning point, I think that then this question that I have been asked again and again, what is China's interest in Antarctica? I mean, kind of popping up. So, I mean, with, with this question, behind this question, there is a, a very uh, kind of a genuine, I would say, genuine anxiety from, let's say, the Australian uh, uh, policy uh, community uh, about what the hell is going on. <laughs> I think that's pretty much uh, the kind of try to try to understand this kind of this kind of a very polite question. What are China's interests? I'm not going to touch about that. Touch upon that question uh, today because I think in Wing's report uh, it has been comprehensively covered. But I, what I want, I, what I really just want to point out is, if you look, if you really want to understand what are China's interests in Antarctica. Uh, there is a very kind of a similar narrative that is pushing by China in many parts of the world. I mean, in, in the decision and lawmaking process, such as uh, the Arctic, such as the deep sea bed mining uh, regime, such as the high sea governance, the BBNJ negotiation, and including the uh, Antarctic Treaty uh, meeting, the ATS system. That is, the, that is what is called the balance between uh, use and protection. So sometimes use is ahead of protection. I think in Antarctic context, protection is ahead of use. But what, what do they mean by balance? I think nobody knows. Uh, it's, it's kind of a very uh, subjective term. And also, what the question here is who determines the balance, and I think that's what where we see all these kind of uh, kind of uh, positions in the Kamala MPA discussions in particular, and uh, and also another issue uh, that Wing uh, also touched upon in her report is uh, is. China wants to have a bigger say. I mean, this is also nothing new because this also falls into the general narrative that uh, China uh, has. I think it really dates back to the decolonization time that it just it just wants a, a fair and just uh, fair and just international system. Uh, so I mean, this is, 
this is even uh, published in China's Antarctic activities. That, that white paper uh, China presented to the world uh, in 2017, when Beijing for the first time hosted the Antarctic Treaty Consultant meeting. So then people may ask, what, what do they mean by a fair and just international system? Once again, it is also very subjective. Like, what do you mean by just? And who deter who goes to determine that? But anyway, I think I will just stop here with, with one last uh, thing to, uh, to, to, to uh, I think raised some in people's interest is uh, China's Antarctic law. The, the official name is China's uh, and Chinese. I think it's a law on Antarctic activities and environmental protection is being uh, drafted uh, in the during the term of the 13th Standing Committee of the People's Congress. Uh, that is, the term is between 2018 and 2023, which means by next year. Uh, China's China will have its domestic law on Antarctica. Uh, it has been it has already been determined that this law will be made during this term. So I think that will be a very good kind of indicator to answer uh, or to further kind of elaborate above two questions like what do they mean by the balance between protection and use, and what do they mean by a fair and just international system uh, in in that uh, in that text? But it hasn't been hasn't been published yet, so we don't have any further news. And I will just stop here. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm disappointed you don't have a crystal ball that can tell us what the party Congress law is going to be. But we can speculate when we get to the Q&A as to where it might go. Um, Richard. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. Well, just at the top, let me say that like you and um, I'm in Canberra. And so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Ngunnawal people and also pay my uh, respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, secondly, congratulations uh, to Yun on the publication of this report. It's a great read. I think this is a really terrific subject to be grappling with because it's a nice little uh, case study of the role that China currently plays in the international system and the role it might play in the international system in the future. And I think it's also, I mean, one of the great tricks, of course, from a Canberra perspective in getting China policy right is trying to understand Beijing's motivations and then trying to work out, well, what is it that we really should be worried about and what is what is it that um, we shouldn't be worried about and that we can pay less attention to? And that's sometimes hard to get right, as uh, as we've seen over the past couple of years. Uh, you, you asked Nick for a, a Canberra perspective, so I just wanted to do a couple of things. One is to think about why Canberra pays a lot of attention to what China's doing in the Antarctica, and then uh, to focus in on one national interest at stake, which is the health of the, the treaty system. So I think, I think the reality is that whoever is in government in Australia is going to pay a lot of attention to China's activities in uh, Antarctica for a few reasons. Uh, one, of course, is you know, there's a fairly significant trust deficit in the relationship at the moment, and that's going to be hard to overcome. Second, the, the global context is, is important. We're, of course, in an era of, of, of very sharp competition between uh, China and the United States and between China and close partners of the United States. Um, the, th the third um, subject of interest of Canberra, of course, is, is as Yun's paper shows, a lot of China's Antarctica infrastructure is within the Australian claim. 
fourthly, uh, as Yun uh, points out in her paper, Australia does place a lot of uh, store on uh, A, the overall health of the uh, Antarctic Treaty System, uh, and, and on particular on conservation in, in that area. And there China has been at best a delaying and often a blocking party, as Yuan says. I don't think any of that rules out the possibility of continuing to work with China on uh, Antarctic matters, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Yuan raises a couple of other possible concerns for Canberra in her paper. One is uh, the issue of military, possible militarisation uh, of Antarctica uh, and the use of dual-use technologies and or um, PLA personnel uh, in the area. I agree with you, not, not as you kindly pointed out, that I'm an expert on this matter, but I think uh, there doesn't seem to be sufficient evidence for Australia to be unduly worried at this stage, although we should keep a careful eye on what happens in the future. And I also agree with you on that there's no evidence, I think, that China is in any hurry to make its own claim of sovereignty in, uh, in Antarctic, Antarctica. Um, so that, that brings us to the health of the treaty system. And the main issue at the moment and the main rub point is the differences on conservation versus resource utilisation. And I think Yun covers these issues pretty well. It's worth noting uh, that even in these early days, uh, Tanya Plibersek, the relevant new Australian federal minister, has recommitted Australia to pursuing the East Antarctica Marine Protected Area. And that's one of the ones that China has uh, blocked and uh, delayed on. So that presumably will continue to be a point of friction uh, between China and the new Australian government. Uh, what do we make of China's motivations here? Well, again, Yun and also Yang Ni have, have covered this pretty well. It seems clear, I think, that China wants at least to keep open its um, economic options in Antarctica. Uh, and they're in the main fishing and tourism, but I don't think China wants to close off the possibility, the future possibility of seabed mining if at some point it decided that uh, made sense. Uh, and then I, I agree uh, that what we're also seeing uh, in the treaty system is a China that globally is trying to assert more inference uh, influence in the multilateral system, as we just heard in the name of a, a more just or equitable system. Of course, one problem at least seen from Canberra is that when China uh, talks like that, it really means a system uh, in which it gets its own way, as great powers uh, uh, want to do. So asserting itself in the ATS is entirely uh, within that objective. I do think there are some risks here that um, it's worth teasing out a little bit more. Yun begins this discussion, but but I think we could go a bit further. And so a couple of risks, I think, from a Canberra perspective are that we begin to see a, a permanent division in the ATS on this issue of conservation versus utilisation. Uh, Australia would not want uh, Kamala, for example, uh, to become, uh, in, in fact, an agreement that protects the right to fish rather than one that enshrines a responsibility to protect and conserve. 
Another would be the, the emergence of uh, blocks within the ATS system, a bit like we see in the UN system more broadly, which Australia has been anxious not to see. Some have worried, for example, about the, the emergence of a permanent fishing block where uh, countries would vote as a block uh, on ATS issues. I think another risk, uh, and I find this an interesting one, is that China increasingly comes to self-define what compliance with the ATS looks like. And by all accounts, uh, from uh, some of the people who follow this issue closely and from reports out of ATS meetings, uh, China is, has already uh, begun to do this to some extent. And I agree with you that we should really resist uh, parallels to the South China Sea. The two situations are totally different. But if there was one possible comparison, this, uh, this one might be it. That is that China defines for itself what compliance with the international law that underpins the treaty is, because by definition, whatever China does is correct and China therefore uh, must be in compliance with the law. And if that came to a major issue of compliance and China simply asserted that it, it was in compliance with the law, as it has done in the South China Sea, then that obviously would be very corrosive. Um, and then just a couple of other things. These are, I think, medium to longer term issues about the treaty system. They're entirely hypothetical. They may never come to pass, but Canberra does think about them. One is that at some possible point in the future, China uh, might see advantage in seeking changes to the um, ATS, to the, to the treaty system uh, that Australia might or might not uh, agree with. And it's worth noting that uh, both the main treaty and the Madrid Protocol that governs minings have review uh, functions embedded in them, although the, the mining one is not uh, due for some time. And as Yun notes in her paper, it's, it's almost impossible to overturn the mining ban from within, uh, from within the treaty system. And then lastly, again, hypothetical, I don't, I don't think this uh, is likely at any time in uh, the foreseeable future, and it may never happen, but we couldn't rule out the possibility that it, if China saw it uh, in its own interest to do so, that it could leave the treaty system entirely. Uh, and this is not, I think, just something that, um, you know, slightly harassed foreign policy officials worry about. The, the very eminent Australian international lawyer, Don Rothwell himself, in writing on the 60th anniversary of the treaty, noted that uh, one couldn't be complacent about that sort of outcome and that there are other examples in history where states have left established uh, international legal frameworks to unilaterally pursue their interest and or to set up um, parallel bodies. So those are, I think, the main uh, issues at stake for Australia from a national interest perspective in the treaty system. What do we do uh, about all that? You know, I, I like the fact that Yun has some policy recommendations in her paper. I think uh, it re remains very strongly in Australia's national interest to uh, preserve the treaty system and to keep China within it. And it's, it's possible, not certain, but it's possible that at some future point, those two objectives might become incompatible but I don't think that we are at that point yet. Uh, protecting the treaty means uh, doing the things that we've been doing as a nation a little better in recent years. That is 
trying to reinvigorate our science, uh, to rebuild our, our capability, to refurbish um, our infrastructure, uh, to invest in, in the science. Uh, I agree with you on that it's worthwhile exploring opportunities for bilateral cooperation. You know, there are some differences here. There are some friction points, as we've discussed, but I don't see anything to be lost from seeing if there are areas uh, of cooperation that are mutually um, beneficial. And then just as a, a last word, Nick, I don't mind uh, you and suggesting that we should appeal to China's better angels in the sense of its own emerging uh, environmental aspirations and narrative. But I would caution against embracing uh, the framework of um, a community of, uh, of common destiny. Uh, that is, um, those kinds of concepts and China's language around them is not in our interest to have them begin to uh, be embedded in uh, the multilateral system. And indeed, in other forums, we fight quite hard to keep that sort of language out. So I'll, I'll leave it there, Nick. Thanks, Richard. <clears throat> I think we'll get to some of these issues, particularly the kind of appealing prospect of the jujitsu move of using China's rhetoric against it. But it does. It is, as you point out, Richard Fraud, and I think there's a cue. One of the questions is, is touches on this as well. But before we get to that, I've just got a, a couple of things I might pitch to each of the panelists. You and might just start. Richard touched on this as as did Nguyen uh, as well. Is really around um, the Antarctic Treaty, and particularly you, you make a you rightly, I think, point out that the, at the moment the PRC is keen for the treaty to remain in force, um, but it's also seen by many as a as a as a bit of a blocker and a country undermining consensus um, and, and destabilizing some of the norms around the treaty system. So what's your sense of how strong the system is um, and how much of a risk is it that a country like China, you know, a country of China's scale and reach and influence in the international system um, continues to be or is even perceived to be a bit of a disruptor uh, to the system? Thank you. Um, thank you, Richard and Nongye. Um, for your um, comments and insights. Um, I will offer uh, my views on this question. I think there is currently still a strong political will from, from all countries to keep the system going. Many countries are you know, uh, frustrated at the lack of progress on issues such as establishment of the marine protected areas, um, but unfortunately, like all consensus-based decision-making, these sort of things would always happen. In other international institutions where there are consensus decision-making, um, often parties do not agree as well. But that does not necessarily mean that the system will fall over. What is it? I guess it's, it's useful to think about what is the potential alternative to the system. So if we don't have these systems, and I think Richard mentioned this as well, one is then to have no system at all. And second one is to establish an alternative, uh, potentially a parallel system. Um, but from China's perspective, though, um, having no system means no progress will be made. And if it's blocking progress right now, then it's, I guess for China's perspective, it's, it's, it doesn't make much sense to leave the system because it can, within the system, blocking progress. Then why would it leave the system in the first place? 
Um, but it is possible then for other countries who are more frustrated to leave the system. And I think that comes into my mind, example of the World Trade Organization, where the United States was very frustrated um, at China. It perceived China was taking advantage of the system, and then it blocked the appointment to the pallet body. And what has that led to is uh, trade disputes being unable to be adjudicated. Um, but in that case, trade was a very high profile issue for both China and United States and most countries. Uh, Antarctica is not. Um, I, and there is no point kicking over the system to score domestic political points. Um, like it would have for trade, because for trade, when you do that, there is a lot of domestic support uh, for that to happen. But for on Antarctica, uh, there, there's not really a, a pressure point for that. Um, and for if there was no system at all, then even less progress will be made. It will be very hard to agree on anything. Um, even if countries come together and decide to establish a say, a protected areas, then there will be an enforcement problem that will be even more difficult to solve than under the current system. So bearing in mind um, these two alternative scenarios, I think the likelihood is still for the system um, to continue. Okay, and just a, a second one for you, Yuan, and this relates, I guess, to the the sort of more sense, some of the more sensationalist uh, reporting um, around, or the, the sort of alarmist responses to China's um, <clears throat> ambitions in, in Antarctica. Um, I mean, I think you're right to say that you know a lot of this is overblown, and there's not a lot of evidence for it. And yet, you know, you, you make clear in the report that the PRC has amb ambitions to be a great Antarctic power, um, and if that were to come to pass. Surely, other countries ought to be somewhat concerned about potential that that would what that would mean, um, and the potential for bringing, you know, force and coercion uh, to bear. And as a consequence, it's, is it is it not unreasonable for countries to be concerned now about that potential building up, and as a result, sort of try to position themselves accordingly, given that ambition that you flagged in the report. Yeah, so China wants to become a great Antarctic power, but it is unlikely to dominate or control Antarctica um, totally. So even the United States in its unipolar heydays did not control Antarctica. And that's mainly for two reasons. Um, one, the benefit of controlling Antarctica is rather small, even taking into account um, the mineral deposits there. Um, on the other hand, controlling such a remote and hostile environment takes a lot of resources. And, you know, as an economist, you always think, well, what's the, uh, whether the resource can be better spent elsewhere. It, countries do not have unlimited resources. When they spend more on Antarctica, they necessarily have to spend less elsewhere. And is Antarctica more strategically important for China than other regions that's closer to China? Probably not. So even if there was a great power, let's say war happening, why would China spend those limited resources on Antarctica as opposed to elsewhere? Now, if we expand the definition of coercion, then it may be different. 
So if we expand the definition to say, if we were talking about, you know, um, putting pressure on countries, whether diplomatically or through trade and economics, then it's possible that China could um, use um, diplomatic pressure or other forms of pressure to to incentivize the governments of other countries to change their mind about certain Antarctic issues. But it is actually more difficult on Antarctic matters um, than on other matters, mainly because um, the consultative parties is a closed club of 29 countries, uh, very uh, limited, and they're mostly rich countries as well. And usually in other international forums, such as the United Nations, China has been... Um, more effective at um, garnering support from uh, developing countries to support its objective. And so it will be more difficult in Antarctica case because the Antarctic party uh, consultative members are more developed and probably less aligned with China geopolitically as well. Thanks, Yun. Um, no, you, know, you touched on the balance between the, the classic kind of use versus protection uh that, that the prc brings its perspective it brings to to the antarctic and and yun's report sort of describes at the moment there's a bit of a balance towards use versus protection i wonder if you might just tell us a little bit more about the debates within the prc about that so the different views and whether you know how strong the voices are that are arguing for more protection versus less use um or the other way around yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, I still remember very clearly when I, I was in uh, 40s Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting in Beijing. Uh, that was also my first time to attend ATCM. And uh, so China organized, uh, and that, that is also kind of uh, unprecedented. So China organized a kind of a working group meeting on uh, on a special kind of a special workshop on on use and protection uh, in Antarctica, and following that, I can't remember it's before or following that. Uh, one of China's most prominent uh, Antarctic scientists, uh, Qin Dahe, so he was also invited to to give a presentation. He talked for about 15, 20 minutes, purely about science touched didn't even mention a single word about youth so so i mean that's that is a kind of very striking experience for me so and also uh a while ago i conducted a, a kind of a uh, literature literature review on on the publication chinese publications on polar issues uh law and policy over the past 10 years and you can see clearly that within the science and, and also social scientist uh kind of community there are quite a, a, a a number of uh, scholars, uh, they are more towards environmental protection. I think, I think at the moment, the governmental, uh, at the governmental level, the uh, and also this is also can be seen from the literature review because those who are kind of a. Uh, uh, close to the government. I mean, those who are, are even uh, selected by government to 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 re represent China in the Chinese delegation to ATCM and Kamala, those people they are more towards youth. While I think the voice regarding the protection is there as well, and it's quite uh, kind of uh, 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 quite kind of uh, visible as well. But to what extent they can influence the decision making of the government? That's a, another issue, I think. Yeah, it's 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 a tricky tricky question that I'm picking the black box of, of CCP decision making. Richard, I might sort of follow up on this particular line of thought. As, as you you said at the end that you you felt that using the PRC rhetoric around um, 
ecological civilization life was not particularly useful or, or shrewd for Australian point of view. What do you think Australia could do um, to help convince the PRC of to, to go down a more conservation, less use path in relation to Antarctica? Well, here's where the uh, the limits of my knowledge of the of uh, Camelar and the system come to play. But it's worth noting that the marine protected areas, the proposals, don't actually ban fishing, and there have been previous examples where it's been possible to find uh, an agreement on uh, on uh, protecting certain marine areas that balance the interests of all parties. So I don't think we should give up on the possibility uh, that we can, over time, find a way forward that would uh, allow China to uh, protect its own interests uh, as any country it will it will pursue its national interests uh, while still achieving the conservation goals uh, that we would like to see. And I think if if China is prepared to enter in that kind of negotiation with good faith, uh, and if all parties are uh, prepared to compromise somewhat, since most most multilateral negotiations are a compromise, everybody has to give up a bit to get something that's for the greater good, then it could still be possible. If, if China sees its interests as better protected by simply not allowing uh, further marine protected areas, and there's no amount of endless <laughs> negotiation that's going to solve it. But I think the jury is still out on that, so we, you know, we may as well have a crack at it. And you know, the the essence is, I think, really uh, less about uh, the rhetoric and more about is there a deal? Is there actually a deal here that can be done, uh, even if it's imperfect, that balances the interests of the parties? And that's where. Uh, very patient, clever multilateral negotiators take over, and uh, flippity gibbet foreign policy wonks like me <laughs> offer encouragement from the sidelines. Excellent. I like the idea of you as a flippity gibbet, Richard. Um, <laughs> so we've uh, we've got plenty of questions in the Q and A box, and we've only got about thirteen or so minutes. So I'd like to turn to those um, now. Uh, and this one's from actually. I'll start with my colleague uh, Dan Bray here at the Trove, who's uh, who has written a bit on uh, Australia's Antarctic policy. Um, and he's been pitched a question that I guess is for, for Yun and Nangye, which is really your sense as to how you know, China's sort of evaluations or China's uh, sense of how Australia is approaching the Antarctic, um, and particularly he references aborted runways and recent proposals for, for new drones. Um, what's the Beijing view based on your research of how Australia is approaching uh, the continent. Uh, Nguyen, do you want to have a first crack at that? Oh, surely. Uh, so I think my, well, after watching this kind of uh, microphones, uh, kind of a diplomacy uh, over the years, and I think when it comes to Antarctica, my, 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 my experience is the Chinese media is, is, is very responsive. So I, I rarely see them really post an article uh, kind of a, uh, 
ahead of a, a, a Australian article. So normally it's, it's, it's a, and also that's quite kind of a similar to the Chinese foreign policy in the old days before the Belt and Road Initiative. It is very uh, responsive. So normally what they do is like they, they see something happening and then they just they just react uh, with, a, with a kind of a reply or, or response. So uh, when it comes to this particular issue about the runway, um, I think there, there was kind of a, a lot of suspicion around the building up of the runway. Uh, I mean, from the media pieces, uh, all kind of used that as a, as a way to justify the Chinese uh, runway project. But I think after that, it was ab ab aborted. Then it's becoming very quiet. So, so I think that's probably is a good sign <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. And you? Um. Yeah, I haven't really looked into the runway runway issue in detail. Of course, I think the runway issue was much more significant in the Australian system than in the Chinese system, I suspect. But of course, China, the Australian system is much more open as well. So it sometimes it can be harder to really gauge what the you know the the, the um, internal sentiment is um, in the PRC unless it is you know, written publicly through state media, but uh, on the issue of what um, China uh, the, the Chinese government thinks of Australia's approach to Antarctica, I think there is a sense that um, Australia is part of uh, this uh, exclusive Western. Um, club uh, almost like a monopoly club where um we, we along with a lot of uh, other richer climate western countries um come together and uh from their perspective um we decide that uh antarctica should be used for this specific purpose um and we do not take into account the um the, the perspective of uh perhaps developing countries, um, especially China. So I think there is a little bit of a resentment uh, from China on um, that front. But there is also, from my readings, a lot of um, people, scholars, who believe that uh, there's a lot to learn from Australia as well. Um, there's a lot of literature about uh, examining Australia's policies, Australia's uh, legislation on Antarctica and whether China can learn from that. So that's also something quite positive about that. Great. Well, I'm going to try to tie together a couple of questions that are about the Antarctic treaty system and particularly uh, the way in which the treaty system is tied to the territorial claims. Um, a couple of uh, uh, participants have observe that the system su supports the claims and Australia's a claimant and that's has some tensions with China's unease about territorial claims the fact that it isn't a claimant and yeah the question the questions seem to you know, the issues that, that, that the participants are drawing on is I guess on the one hand uh if you want to safeguard the Antarctic regime and you want to tie China's interest in it would some kind of movement in relation to Australia's claimant stances help in that regard uh that's one side and the other side just trying to scroll down to find the the other aspect of the question um yeah and, and then more broadly yeah harry harding asks whether australia's territorial claims gives it some kind of leverage is there room to maneuver in the longer run 
um, if you're looking to try to manage the system, I guess getting back to what you were saying, Richard, about the give and take of, of multilateral diplomacy, what part do the territorial, what part might territorial claims play in that longer run management of, of the Antarctic system? Um, I might start with you, Richard, and then we'll kind of work back um, across the panel. Yeah, well, my sense is that the treaty system actually, at least for the time being, serves China's interests here, because while uh, while it prevents China from making its own claim, it also prevents the current claimants from doing anything about theirs. So it's sort of like loaded guns at everyone's head. No, nobody can move. Um, uh, and... You know, that was one of the core deals uh, behind the original formation of the treaty. And to my mind, it you know, it's still a good deal. Uh, you know, Australia still does take its claim uh, very seriously, and that's one reason why the, the runway was sort of entertained, at least for a while, before it became clear it was just going to bankrupt everyone. Um, and so, you know, when you look at... Um, what, what successive governments have said about Australia's national interests, they will list our sovereignty, right? But, but in effect, we, our sovereignty is null. You know, as Ewan says, you know, a, a tiny handful of countries recognise it, um, the rest won't. So uh, this freezing of, of everybody's claims, stopping new entrants from making claims, for the time being, serves everyone's interests, including China's, I think. But it does mean that Australia doesn't really have any leverage because we would never, I can't imagine the Australian government giving up uh, our, our claim. Uh, and then the only other thing I would say, I suppose, is just come back to the point I said uh, right at the end of my remarks, which is that if at some point China decided it wanted to make a claim, that its interests were served by that, it would have to leave the treaty system. No, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a very uh, tricky kind of a question about the territorial claim and 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 Tariq treaty system. I mean, I guess my my my. To be honest, I think at the end of the day, it is the best to just keep it low profile, to keep it low and leave it leave it low. I mean, because the thing is. At least, I think my understanding from 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 that, as I mentioned before, from the uh, the Chinese uh, practice in in ATS per se, every time every time when there is something happening, then China uh, kind of uh, just responded. For example, one flash potential flashpoint. I think one uh, one attendee asked this question: What are the potential flashpoint? One potential flashpoint in the ATS is the uh, the establishment of the continental shelf. Uh, along so from the Antarctic continent, so I think when Australia submitted its its, its uh, submission to the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea Commission on the Continental Shelf uh, on the outer limits of the Continental Shelf, uh, based on its uh, Antarctic uh, territorial claim, I think China responded very uh, kind of firmly and kind of a. Uh, uh, very uh, unpleasantly uh, to deny this kind of uh, this kind of claim. So the thing is, it is already frozen. So the best, as best, the best thing we can do, and we should do, is just to leave it as frozen as possible. Don't try to stir it up, because I think sometimes, especially in the past years, it has been stirred up quite a lot uh, by the media reports. And of course, it's not just media reports. To be fair, and I, I can see that uh, in the in the ATCM. Uh, 
and also especially in the Kamala meetings, because I, I observed the meeting last year, I can see that it became very tense between between the Chinese delegation and 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 the rest of the delegations. And there is a potential that, uh, as Wing and Richard touched upon as well, like. The Chinese and Russian delegations, they are, they are not necessarily uh, close allies uh, in the in the entire context. But I think now, because of geopolitical tension, and now they are getting closer. And also, they share similar views. So, uh, and also, the, the problem in the ATS is China has not does not have any other friend. Uh, like, uh, for example, in the, in the United Nations, uh, China allies itself with a group of 77. So there are 134 developing countries uh, that to, allow, to be allied with, while in Kamala and ATS, that's only Russia. So that is actually a potential uh, kind of risk as, well, risk as well. And we already seen that. We have already seen that in the Kamala uh, meetings, not in the ATCM uh, yet. <clears throat> Don't, don't put the territorial claims in the microwave for defrosting just yet, I think. Um, Ewan, any final thoughts on this one? I agree with uh, what's being said. And uh, yes, Antarctica is always a, a very productive sphere for uh, bad puns as well, I find. Uh, or good puns. Good puns. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree. Don't need to, yes, I, I think it'll be very difficult for climate countries to give up their claims. Totally. And certainly there has been a lot of other alternative models being um, pushed and examined previously. I think in the 80s, there was this UN trusteeship model, um, which was pushed by Malaysia. But this is, I don't think that's uh, been considered as a viable alternative these days. And I think the best way forward for a lot, most for most countries believe the best way forward is to continue the current system. But on the other hand, uh, we don't need to, you know, continuously, uh, I guess, stir up, as Nadia said, uh, over, overly assert our territorial claims. Um, so we, we don't have to go around and say, well, this is our territory. You can't build things here. Or it's not that Australian government does that. But um, again, there's some, sometimes it can be stirred up by, for example, media and other, um, uh, other organizations. Uh, or uh, there's another interesting uh, story of Antarctic uh, of Argentina and Chile trying to encourage uh, people women, uh, to encourage people to go to Antarctica while they were pregnant so they can give birth there just to uh, apparently bolster their claims as well. It's, uh, I thought that was an interesting tactic. Um, but again, those things we, we don't need that. We can just keep as it is. I think that's the best way forward. So we've got time for one final question. So quick responses from each of you, because I think this is a really useful and, and perhaps optimistic way of finishing things. And this is a question coming from uh, Tony Press and basically makes the point that the Antarctic Treaty began as a disarmament treaty and had and has and had, so had and has a strong emphasis on mutual assurance um, through open inspection and compliance reporting and so on. What can be done to build a stronger sense of mutual assurance in the future? So we might go backwards again through the past. Actually, Nungyo, you can go first, then Richard, and we'll finish with Yun, who's the, as the the author of the report. Yeah, I think the best thing the best thing is just to, to just do a good job. I mean, for <laughs> for every single country, including Australia, just to just to do what they can following the ATS. I think that's the best way forward. Everyone just does their job, 
and then follow the law and uh, with a belief and uh, and then at least we also kind of create and and maintain that belief that yeah this is it don't 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 mess it up i think that's probably the best way we can do rather than trying to think about oh yeah how can we collaborate where to cooperate at least this might not be uh realistic anyway so yeah quick just, just quickly stop here just be good thank you thank you it's good quality advice richard <laughs> what the americans might say don't do dumb stuff um look the the treaty itself, as the as the question says, does actually provide a great deal of reassurance within it. So, um, you know, I agree that the key thing is is to to uh, be treaty parties and operate with good faith and act in accordance with not just the the law but the spirit of the treaty. The only other thing I can think of is that a lot of people say that. Um, uh, there needs to be more inspections done uh, of bases and stations under the treaty. They're hard to do because they're costly. Of course, they carry risk to the, the people involved. Uh, and so um, they've only been done patchily, including by Australia, although we did do a string of them, uh, I think, in late, late 2019, early 2020. And so if people are looking for more assurance, then a healthy a healthy inspection system which is treated uh, in a non-defensive way by um, all parties to the treaty could add some reassurance. And you? I agree with what's being said. I know inspection is one way, but it is costly. Um, and if we want to, I guess, reassure certain um, segment of the society, if it becomes an issue, that is, if it becomes a bigger issue and we need to reassure certain segments of society, then we will have to put more investment um, into, um, into um, inspection and compliance. Um, but other than that, um, how to do mutually assure? It's, it's difficult because as we start off at the beginning of this um, discussion to talk about uh, distrust, and it's very hard to... Um, to go from distrust to trust. And we just have to take small steps and not just on Antarctic issues, but also on other issues, because you know, distrust between part between countries can, can affect between different forums and different issues as well. So we need to just build that trust over time in different international forums. Thanks, Yul. I'm afraid we are in fact slightly over time. I said we'd be punctual and I'm breaking my promise. Um, just final things to say before we close off. Um, firstly, Yun's report, which I have a physical copy in my hands, which is very old-fashioned, um, can be uh, downloaded from the China Matters website. The address is in the chat that Kate uh, put up earlier, or you can just Google China Matters Antarctica report, because that's how I've got it. Um, uh, to this, this webinar is being recorded. Um, we will send everyone who's here a, a link to the recording. Um, when it's available, uh, and so please do pass that around. I think someone in the in the Q and A asked whether that would be made available. So do uh, check that out um, when you have uh, a moment. Finally, uh, I'd like just to thank uh, Dinah Heatherich uh, and Kate Clayton from the Tribasia, and Lindy Jacobson and Jeremy Stevens from China Matters for all their work in bringing uh, this webinar together. Um, a special thank you to Richard Nungia and Yuan, our panelists. Um, 
for such a, a insightful and interesting conversation. And finally, thank you to all our participants uh, for taking time to be with us this afternoon.